Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Tonight on the Hinckley Report, Utah senators split their votes as a final decision is made on the next United States Supreme Court justice. Some candidates submit signatures to ensure their place on the primary ballot, while others leave their fate to the delegates at convention. And new polling shows Utahns' opinions on critical issues facing the state and country. Good evening, and welcome to the 200th episode of The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Lisa Riley-Roche, reporter with Deseret News, Glenn Mills, anchor with ABC4 News, and Ben Winslow, reporter with Fox 13 News. So glad to have you all with us this evening. We have a lot to get to. I, I wanna start with something happening in, in Washington, D.C. that impacts the country, though. Lisa, start with you. We have uh, a new Supreme Court justice named, a United States Supreme Court justice, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, just ha had a approval from our Senate. Talk about first, without the politics, just the historic nature of this appointment. Well, here you have the first black woman justice poised to join the Supreme Court when uh, Justice Breyer retires at the end of the term. It was such an incredibly emotional moment for so many people to see themselves joining the, uh, the court, the highest court in the land. It was a moment uh, for, for women. It was a moment for African-Americans. It was a moment for so many people, and yet it was overshadowed to some degree by by politics. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a little hard for a lot of people to see, I think. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the politics in the Supreme Court nominees, and there certainly was that. Glenn, talk, let's start talking about that for a moment. This was a very different reaction from our two senators from yeah. the state of Utah. Yeah, we've come to see that on a number of issues, especially the controversial ones where Senators Lee and Romney split and go in different directions. Somewhat reflective of what we see play out in the Utah GOP as a whole. Uh, but it wasn't that long ago that Supreme Court justice nominees would cruise through the Senate with maybe two or three senators voting against them, certainly within our lifetimes. But we've seen a shift, no doubt, uh, you know, with Justice Thomas, it got very contentious. Uh, I remember when, back in 2005, when President Bush nominated uh, Harriet Meyer, remember that? She was done almost immediately by the time he nominated her. Uh, but in all fairness, I need to point out that was Republicans speaking out against her as well. But we've just seen this partisan shift, and we only saw three Republicans vote in favor of Judge uh, Jackson this uh, yeah. this confirmation. Yeah, Ben, what do you make of, of that, and how does that play in the state? We have we have uh, Senator Romney, who voted for, and you know talked about her qualifications. He, he did acknowledge, probably gonna have some rulings that he doesn't agree with, but went, went towards her qualifications. And we had uh, Senator Lee, who talked a little more about the judicial philosophy. 
Well, to Glenn's point, this kind of speaks to the divides even within uh, Utah's Republican Party and how they view some of these things. Um, you know, the, the split, just you have certain groups that obviously had concerns with whether she should be on the bench there in the U.S. Supreme Court. And then you had others who said, yeah, I may not agree with her rulings, I, like Senator Romney said, uh, but she's qualified, she deserves to be there, let's put her there and, and voting for it. And, and I think that just kind of plays out and what you're seeing is maybe even the polarization at play within our own state. Yeah. One, one yeah. interesting point I want to bring up real quick is she was up before the Senate just last year for the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, Senator Romney voted against her for the circuit court and for her in the Supreme Court. I reached out to his team to try to get some insight on why that was. I haven't heard back from him as of recording, but I think it would be interesting to hear why he changed from no on the circuit court to yes on the Supreme Court. And Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina did the opposite, right? He voted for her for mm -hmm. the uh, circuit court and against her for the Supreme Court. And for what it's worth, Senator Lee was no both times. But mm -hmm. I believe Senator Lee, the first time she was up, because this is her third time for confirmation, I believe he might have been a yes the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, ben, since you brought this up for just a moment, how, and I know you're talking to a lot of people in the state of Utah about this. How, these, are, these two very different approaches, how are they being perceived in Utah on the political side? You know, the Utahns are going to have a chance to vote for Mike Lee before they're going to have a chance to vote for Mitt Romney if they do. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch play out because what you have is uh, going into convention right now, of course, uh, Senator Lee is beloved by the delegates. Uh, we saw at the last state party convention rock star treatment that he got, uh, the cheers, Senator Romney got booed. But on the other hand, you also see in electorate uh, general primaries and things, Mitt Romney did very well. He was, he, a lot of people really liked him, very beloved in, in that respect, at least against his uh, last opponent um, when it came to the results of the Republican primary. So, you know, this, this is playing out here as well on a much smaller scale, obviously, compared to national politics, but it's still playing out. Mm -hmm. uh, Lisa, what's hanging in the balance? We talk about the politics of these picks, but there are some pretty big issues uh, that are being decided right now by the current makeup of the United States Supreme Court, and some big ones will be coming down the road. There, there certainly are major issues coming up. And, it, and getting back to this, this issue of uh, the, the split that we saw over her uh, uh, nomination and how it was treated in the Senate. It's so interesting to me that, that most of the issues that were raised by the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee seem to have little, if anything, to do with what she would be doing in terms of dealing with some of these, mm -hmm. these major issues that are coming up. You know, did she agree with a, a children's book that was in a library of a school she sat on the board of? Uh, could she define woman? Um, could she talk about some specific things that might come before the court? Well, a nominee doesn't do that because a nominee has to be able to look at issues with an open mind going forward, and, and that would certainly include the definition of woman, for example, with, with transgender and LGBTQ issues uh, continuing to, to head toward the, uh, toward the court. So the fact that the Republicans base their whole attack on her nomination on things that largely had little, if anything, to do with those issues is very curious. It's just, it seems like we're getting more and more extreme. Hmm. 
uh, and how we uh, how we politicize the, these issues. And something as important as the Supreme Court, it's. It's astounding that we've gotten to this point. It's a show. The hearings are a show, and politicians are trying to score points with their base. If you take a look at those questions that you just mentioned, they're all based on the hot issues of the day that are really driving people when it comes to politics right now, and, and they see that as an opportunity to say, look, I'm standing up for what you believe in here in this Supreme Court setting, when in, as you point out, really has nothing to do with what's going to happen on the bench. Yeah. When does that base say, or, or, or how does that base uh, grow, though? I mean, cause that's what politicians need to get elected, yeah. right? Let's talk about that base for just a second, because I want to ask you about uh, the President Biden uh, impact from this, Glenn, since you brought that up as well, because Lisa is right. I'm going to give you the Utah perspective, just the numbers from a poll that we did with the with the Deseret News recently. And uh, President Biden has a 31% approval rating in the state of Utah, just over around, around 40 nationally. Yeah. Does this pick help him? Is it help the space that Lisa's talking about? In the state of Utah or anywhere across the country? Yeah. Across the country, I think it might. Here in the state of Utah, I'm not so sure that it will. Uh, but when you talk about a president's approval rating, I still believe that most people are looking at economic issues and how they perceive presidential policies are impacting yeah. their pocketbook. So in the state of Utah, I don't see this nomination going through having much of an impact on his approval rating. Okay, let's talk about another Supreme Court pick. Ben, uh, our own governor had a chance to nominate someone for the Utah Supreme Court, one already, and is going to have another opportunity. Right, and this is an opportunity for a governor to shape the judiciary. I should point out that Governor Cox's predecessor, Gary Herbert, appointed roughly 75% of the sitting judges in the state. That's a huge impact on the judicial branch. And Governor Cox uh, gets to appoint two Supreme Court justices. Justice Dino Jimones retired. Justice Thomas Lee is going to retire. So this is an opportunity for him to also shape uh, the judiciary, because the Supreme Court, as we're seeing on a national stage with some of these big issues, like Lisa mentioned, you also have local decisions, and there's some big ones that are coming up. We've got a redistricting lawsuit that's no doubt going to end up before the state Supreme Court. They have decided important issues on transgender rights. They've decided issues on constitutional rights. They've interpreted legislative laws. This is a big moment, and this is something why people should be paying attention to the Supreme Court and what these justices do, because even on a local level, they shape our lives. And uh, the governor has a chance to put his imprint on it. Of course, he's got to get through the Senate. These nominees, the governor can appoint one, but it's the Senate that confirms them. And the hearings will be interesting to see if uh, Ju Judge Hagan's uh, judicial philosophies, judicial uh, temperament, things like that, the, the rulings in the past, if the Senate uh, confirmation committee uh, supports these things and if the Senate as a whole does. I don't expect a lot of problems. In fact, I've been told not no one really has any concerns or anything about this. Uh, but it's just another example of how these systems of government do work and how they can inf have outsized influence on a lot of us. It's, a, it's just a great point. And another example of how things are so different when you take a look at the national level versus mm -hmm. yeah. the state level. Yeah, absolutely right. One other point yeah. I wanted to bring up on the National Supreme Court real quick, though, is conservatives still have a strong grip. When we talk about what's to come, um, as far as the cases with abortion and other issues that the Supreme Court's going to be taking up, conservatives still have a strong grip on the court. 
this move really doesn't change the political makeup of the court all that much. Uh, let's get into some elections because uh, we talked about uh, our Senate a little bit, but I want to get into that Senate race and the, 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 ra the, the position held by Senator Mike Lee because that is already getting pretty active here in the state of Utah. Um, uh, as of this last week, uh, on the Republican side, Senator Mike Lee, Ali Isom, and, and Becky Edwards all got signatures. So Lisa, how does, how does this play going forward? Because it's interesting, all three of them guaranteed a place on the primary ballot for the Republicans. Exactly, and, and what we're seeing is a real attempt to unseat uh, Senator Mike Lee. Uh, after, after two terms uh, in the Senate here in Utah. And we're seeing it at the primary level, obviously, with, with uh, Becky Edwards and Ali Isom challenging him, and both of them going after more moderate voters, trying to pick up uh, perhaps uh, unaffiliated voters and maybe even a few Democrats. But the real race is, is going to be uh, in November, obviously. And if Mike Lee, who polled very well for us in our Hinkley Deseret News poll recently, um, does win the primary, he'll face a really interesting general election mm -hmm. because not only will he have uh, uh, potentially Democrats, uh, there's a whole, whole other issue there, but all those unaffiliated voters, remember twice as many voters are unaffiliated as, as registered Democrat in Utah, but he'll also have to deal with those Republicans who were unhappy enough with him to vote for one of his rivals in the, in the primary. So there's a, there's a real opportunity for a coalition to be put together there and, and get behind uh, the independent candidate, Evan McMullen, who ran for president in 2016 and even got Mike Lee's vote. Yeah, uh, that's, that's true. Yeah. Uh, talk about how this is shaping up, Glenn, because this is true. So this unaffiliated candidate, Evan McMullen, talk about Kel Weston, the Democratic candidate. Uh, but even this week, we saw something interesting, this development when former President Donald Trump uh, issued an endorsement of yeah. Senator Mike Lee. And Evan McMullen and his team were quick to point that out because that's their strategy, is uh, that you know, they're offering this alternative to the Trump Republican. And so they were, you know, making sure to get that word out. Uh, we haven't really heard from Senator Lee as to that uh, endorsement at this time. So still kind of waiting to hear what he says about it. But Evan McMullen was quick to point it out. Hey, the former president is endorsing Senator Lee. Uh -huh. Do you think we'll hear more from Senator Lee about that endorsement, or is that something um, right? Hard, hard to say. Uh, it might help him potentially in the primary setting, uh, and then not so much in the general. So I guess we'll just kind of have to uh, wait and see whether he'll embrace that or not. Uh -huh. yeah, it's not even clear it'd be helpful in the primary, right? I mean, it would certainly be helpful at convention right. because oh, yeah. those are those are the pro-Trump right. uh, voters, right? Mm -hmm. But in the in the general. Uh, I mean, in the primary election, you, you have a lot more moderate Republicans. I mean, clearly, you've got candidates uh, trying to take advantage of that. So right. I think a general consensus in the primary is that with both Allie and Becky on the ticket, that really opens up the door for uh, Senator Lee, because they are going to split that 
more moderate vote or the vote that you're talking about. And I really expected to see some kind of deal worked out between those two uh, to get one of them off the ticket, but obviously we didn't see that happen. I know efforts were made to try to make that happen, but it didn't. And uh, then it all repeats itself again heading into a general election, whoever survives the primary. And it's going to be interesting to see if the Democrats actually do advance a candidate out of their party convention. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been discussion about not advancing a candidate, and we've seen, uh, just as you see uh, Republicans engage in their own party infighting, you see Democrats doing the exact same thing. Um, and, and that's going to be interesting, because we know that former Congressman Ben McAdams has been a vocal supporter of Evan McMullen, uh, Mayor Jenny Wilson as well. Um, and that's playing out. Those are two big party names in the Democratic Party who are backing an independent candidate because they believe he has the better shot of mm -hmm. winning or possibly defeating uh, the incumbent should he advance to the general election. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and what happens when you, for whomever, gets through the primary in the Republican side. Yeah, what do you make of, while well, you talk about these candidates, uh, we talk about this endorsement from President, former President Trump, but while he made that endorsement, he also took the opportunity to take a shot at Evan McMullen and Mitt Romney. The former president has been known to hold grudges, and it's clear he is still very upset with Senator Romney. Uh, Evan McMullen, of course, was uh, a presidential candidate the last uh, go-round, or excuse me, uh, against Donald Trump, and it was, uh, he, he did okay in Utah. I mean, did better than he was expected to. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, watch this one play out a little more. Uh, I want to get to our members of Congress because um, we they're they're all up for election, and it's so interesting, Lisa, because I want to talk about their approach. Uh, and you, you really can't talk anymore about uh, position in Congress without talking about signatures and sort of the decisions our candidates have to make. Do I get signatures and sure my place on the primary ballot, or do I leave my fate to the hands of the delegates? Uh, and we only had one member, current sitting member of our delegation in the House. The got signatures, and that and that was uh, Congressman Moore. It, I, I think the biggest surprise is that uh, Congressman uh, John Curtis did not gather signatures to guarantee a place on the ballot. Because remember, when he was elected initially to replace Jason Chaffetz in a special election, he did not do well at all at the uh, at the special yeah. convention, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, was was uh, far down the list of candidates uh, that the delegates wanted to advance. Now, clearly, he's got a record to stand on, and I I don't think he's done anything that would be seen as as uh, particularly offensive to to delegates to the more conservative base of the party. But there are some pretty conservative candidates, uh, including Chris Harrod, a former state lawmaker, who was one of the people who did very well against mm -hmm. him initially. Uh, who's running again. So Curtis could be in a, in a, a pretty dicey situation uh -huh. with uh, the convention. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked that he didn't uh, choose to gather signatures. I would guess that he's taking a look at it as, as you mentioned, that special election. I think he finished fifth that year. He right. it, he wouldn't have been on the ballot without signatures. Uh, the following year, he did a little better with delegates, but still had a primary. Then in uh, 
2020, he finally got through convention, and he did face Chris Herod back then as well, and without a primary. So I, I think he's probably looking at it as, you know, I've made uh, head ground with delegates. Last time I didn't have to worry about it, so this time I'm putting my faith in them. But a lot of people are saying this may not be the year for him to do that. Yeah, so, so, go ahead, Ben. I yes. mean, delegates, uh, what we've seen, at least in county party conventions, delegates are a little more uh, conservative on the conservative ideological spectrum. They're a little more on the, the right-leaning conservative. So uh, it, there is a little bit of a sea change. I don't know if that's going to play out all the way to state convention, but it appears to be tracking that way. What is also really interesting about this is you're seeing the signature caucus convention system playing out. and. I'm going to be curious to see after this election cycle what the legislature does. If yeah. they continue to allow this or if they try to put a stop to it. And past efforts to try to put a stop to the signature gathering have not gone well for the legislature. Uh, one other note on that. Senator Lee, I think we'd probably all agree, is the convention darling. Mm -hmm. He gathers signatures. Mm -hmm. That tells you a lot. Yeah. And that's why I'm still looking at the third race and, and just really surprised that Curtis didn't do that. Uh, right before I leave this, uh, Lisa, it's interesting. So uh, so our viewers know, if for, for a House race, you need 7,000 signatures. And as some of these uh, members, as they're making that decision, say I get, it's, it's not that huge of a hurdle, but it's an expensive hurdle. And that's sometimes what is playing into these uh, calculations as well. Exactly. Uh, it, it does cost quite a bit of money to go out and gather signatures, but uh, if you want to get reelected, it seems like you would want to make every effort. And, and Glenn's point is a very good one. If, if it's good enough for Senator Mike Lee, who is arguably the most conservative member of the delegation, uh, that should give, give cover to any other Republican. At this point, you kind of wonder, shouldn't every campaign just budget it in? that you gather signatures just to, if you want to ensure a spot on the ballot, because that's what it's meant to do is guarantee you a spot on the primary ballot. Uh -huh. uh, let's talk about the people who, are, who can help guarantee if you, if you don't have the signatures, these delegates. Uh, Glenn, I want to just get a comment from you on what's, what's happening with these delegates, uh, because uh, we've had a couple of election cycles now where we talk about uh, party rating. <laughs> where you can kind of strategize in such a way. So if I'm a Democrat, or maybe I'm Jim DeBacchus, as I may recall, say, uh, register as a Republican and pick, you know, pick the greatest one or right. the most conservative one. Talk about how that's working this time yeah. as opposed to yeah. what we've seen in the past. So in the race for governor, we had John Huntsman coming out and encouraging people to do that very thing. And, and we saw big movements in 2020 uh, from Democrats and unaffiliateds to the Republican Party. We didn't see that this much this time. Now, uh, Representative Tusher, who ran that bill, came out with a statement saying that he believes what he did worked. But I don't think you can really compare the two years because, one, I think 2020 was just a bigger draw with the race. And, two, this year, the Democrats aren't necessarily focusing on the primary, as we've established in this show. They're looking forward to the general election, the one race they want to make a difference in in the race for Senate. They're focused more on the general than they are the primary. Mm -hmm. There was also a sense that with the deadline moved up, people weren't necessarily paying too close of attention to the party switching deadline. And the way that the law is structured is still for if you are a registered in one party, whether it's Democrat, Constitution, whatever, if you want to vote in the closed Republican primary, you need to switch your party affiliation. And you can really switch your affiliation if you're a Republican and you want to become a Democrat. It mm -hmm. works the same way. But 
what it doesn't apply to is unaffiliated voters. And that'll be interesting to see what happens is how many people who are unaffiliated decide to affiliate before the June primary. Mm -hmm. Lisa, maybe give us our last comment on this too, because you brought this up a moment ago as well. Uh, that March 31st deadline, these, if, you're, uh, if you are affiliated, that's when you have a chance to change, but it really does not give us a full view at all about who might show up for these. To, to Ben's point, exactly. Um, it, it, we have uh, twice as many unaffiliated voters in this state as we do Democrats. And I think that that new law actually creates a little bit of confusion. I know I had to uh, yeah. to check that out before the, the show to make sure I understood it correctly, because yeah. even reading the law. But you still have time, if you're an unaffiliated voter, to affiliate with a party. And in this, this state, the Republican primaries are closed, meaning you have to be an affiliated Republican to vote. But the Democrats are open. So if you're interested in voting in the Republican Party and are, are unaffiliated, you can do it up right up mm -hmm. to and including Election Day. Mm -hmm. We watch this one close. So many dynamics at play. I want to talk about one more dynamic uh, as we get ready to close here, uh, because I, I see this being a major issue, um, here, certainly in the state of Utah, but on the national stage. And that issue is inflation. Uh, it's getting so expensive for everything. And we've done some polling, as we talked about with the Deseret News, 93% uh, of Utahns said they're concerned about it. But what's interesting, Ben, a comment on this is uh, only 38% of Utahns said they saw their salary increase over this past year while costs continue to go up. How much does this water cost again? <laughs> I mean, really. No, exactly. no it is, it, it's a big concern for everybody. Look, we're all feeling it because we all, you know, got to go buy groceries. We yeah. all got to buy, you know, things to get around and costs are going up and yeah, wages are not. And you're starting to see, that's why I think you're also seeing a little bit of the, the great resignation that mm -hmm. is, of course, all over this state. And people are leaving because they're like, I can get a better gig somewhere else and make more money here. Wages have to keep up with the inflation or inflation's got to come down. It's, this is, this mm -hmm. is, we're hitting this point and people are feeling it. People are feeling it directly. And uh, people do vote with their pocketbooks. Yeah. Yeah, people vote strongly with their pocketbooks. Absolutely. Yeah. I see that being probably the number one factor going into election. Mm -hmm. Well, the oh, Ukrainian war kind of throws a, a little bit of a, uh, a wrench into anyone that would want to use that to oust the, the current uh, uh, leadership because it is affecting, obviously, gas prices mm -hmm. in, in a big way. And, and I think gas prices are the one thing, but that and housing. Um, uh, gas prices, though, are the one thing everyone uses every day and uh, are, have really, really gone up. Yeah. But, uh, but there is that, that caveat that uh, in, in some, at least some measure, it's due to the fact that uh, 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 the Ukrainian war has caused us to stop uh, Russian oil imports and... Yeah. Uh, upset the markets. Uh, to, to that very question, it's interesting because we asked Utahns if they would be willing to pay more money for their gas if it meant restricting oil and uh, other uh, things coming from the Soviet Union. And Utahns, Glenn, said yes in our last 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, they probably say yes, but still want the gas prices to come down, <laughs> uh -huh. would be my guess. But uh, there's a sense of support for Ukraine in Utah, and I think that has a lot to do with driving that number. Absolutely right. Thank you so much for your great analysis this evening. It's been exceptional. And thank you for joining us as we mark the 200th episode of The Hinkley Report. We're so grateful for your viewership and your support as we've reached this historic milestone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.